Hi, and welcome back to Wild EM Podcast. Before we get on to today's show, we've got some news for you. Here at Wild EM Headquarters, we are joining forces with Canadium, a virtual community of practice for Canadian emergency medicine practitioners whose goal it is to produce quality, free, open access medical education. You can check out all their amazing content at canadiem.org. That is C-A-N-A-D-I-E-M dot org. Now, most of it is self-proclaimed, geared more towards emergency medicine practitioners, but interesting nonetheless for anyone participating in the care of acutely sick patients. All right, with no further ado, on to today's show. Asthma. You're listening to Canadian Podcasts. Asthma affects almost up to 10% of the population in America, which is huge. With these numbers also on the rise, it will come as no surprise that you will inevitably see more acute asthma exacerbations in the wilderness setting as well. Still not impressed? Well, here are a few stats you should consider. Knowles records indicate that 2% of all reported medical incidents are asthma-related, and up to 5% of participants in various adventure races suffer from asthma, requiring medical attention. So why is this? Well, exercise is often a trigger of an asthma exacerbation. And if you're going outside into the wilderness, chances are there will be some form of exertion. Further exacerbating this are activities in a cold environment, also known to trigger asthma. Finally, air quality degradation associated with human activity is also responsible for an increase in asthma exacerbation. All these points should have you convinced of the importance of dealing with an unexpected asthma exacerbation in the wilderness. Before getting into the treatment of asthma in the wilderness, I'll emphasize that the best way to treat asthma is to avoid treating it at all. With careful pre-trip planning and disease control with a trained healthcare professional before you head outside. So if you are traveling with people with asthma in your group, ensure their symptoms are well controlled and that they are clear for the upcoming adventure before leaving. Clinical Presentation An asthma exacerbation will typically present itself as shortness of breath. Often, it will be associated with coughing, chest tightness, and symptom improvement with the use of inhaled beta-adrenergic medications, which we will get into in the treatment section. In the absence of more advanced diagnostic tools, an important piece of the history will be previous asthma history, and knowing how well the patient's asthma is normally controlled, as well as any history of previous exacerbations needing emergent medical attention. In the hospital setting, measurement of oxygen saturation levels and lung auscultation will help us to guide the diagnosis of asthma and the severity of the exacerbation. In the wilderness, though, I will not have these tools with me most of the time, but an important feature of asthma is airway inflammation leading to air being trapped in the lungs. For this reason, Patients who tend to spend more time trying to breathe air out during the respiratory cycle as they do breathing air in. 
Now, this prolonged expiratory time is a clinical sign of lower airway obstruction, and this can be observed without any medical gear. Also, in more severe cases, the classical wheezing sound associated with asthma exacerbation can be heard without a stethoscope or any other fancy tools. Though, not hearing it does not rule out a more mild asthma exacerbation by any means. Lastly, patients with any breathing pathology will be working hard to breathe. This can be seen in their speech, meaning they are talking in shorter sentences to catch their breath, but also with the use of accessory muscles like the neck muscles or intercostal muscles to assist their breathing. Treatment. So let's say you are with a patient in the wilderness setting, short of breath, you've just finished your assessment, and you have reasonable cause to believe that an asthma exacerbation is responsible for their symptoms. What is next? Number one, remove the trigger. If feasible, try and remove any trigger of the current asthma attack. Slow down or stop any physical activity, remove the patient from any smoke or inhaled substances that could contribute to their symptoms, and if you're in the cold and it's possible to find a warmer spot to rewarm, that would be adequate as well. Number two, positioning. Place the patient in a position of comfort to assist them with their breathing. Lying flat down is often not ideal here, and it is more difficult for patients to fully expand their lungs and get air in. Often, a seated position is what's best here. And some may even want to be slightly bending forward to support their arms to facilitate accessory muscle use to assist their breathing. Number three, oxygen. Oxygen is required for patients with low oxygen levels. Boom, simple enough, right? Now, the challenge might be determining your oxygen saturation in the field. Normally, as we mentioned, asthma is more of a disease of air trapping in the lower extremities, and therefore hypoxemia is not typically present until later in a more severe disease course. But maybe more relevant for you, if you are not a professional rescuer or on a medical team, you likely won't have access to oxygen when you are in the wilderness. So easy enough, right? But for teams that do have oxygen, it's my opinion you should also attempt to measure an oxygen saturation level before administrating it, as more and more studies have been starting to confirm and show us the harms of inappropriate oxygen administration. And furthermore, administrating oxygen in the wilderness when it's not required will really complicate your rescue with regard to the equipment you'll need to bring in, such as the oxygen cylinders, and how to help the patient or assist them out. Number four, inhaled beta agonist drugs. Salbutamol is classified as a short-acting beta-agonist drug. Its effect is to dilate your lower airways to let more of that sweet, sweet air inside your lungs. Now, this is the initial step in treating asthma exacerbations. Inhaled salbutamol can be administered up to eight inhalations every 20 minutes in the first hour for severe cases. Note that anyone requiring more than two treatments in the first hours should be assessed in a hospital setting. So that should already start to cue you in to start thinking about your disposition planning if you are in the wilderness setting. Inhaled drugs have also been shown to be more efficacious when used with a spacer. A spacer is essentially a large plastic tube that attaches the salbutamol pump in order to help get the drug down further into the patient's lower airways. In a study called Improvement of Inhaler Efficacy by Homemade Spacer, the authors showed that a homemade spacer MacGyvered from a plastic bottle was just as good as any commercial spacers, 
but both these options were better than the inhaler alone in getting the medication down to your lower airways, making the point that you should use some sort of spacer for effective drug delivery. And by the way, can we just stop a while to appreciate the title of that last study? Improvement of inhaler efficacy by homemade spacer? I mean, all the information is there. Good job, guys. Number five, corticosteroids. Moderate to severe asthma exacerbations are also treated with corticosteroids. If you remember, on episode three on anaphylaxis, we reviewed the dubious evidence for their use in anaphylaxis. This is not the case in asthma. A Cochrane systematic review published in 2007 showed that a course of oral corticosteroids reduced the chances of a relapse requiring a second emergency department visit in the following two weeks after the initial exacerbation. The magnitude of effect was excellent as well. Other studies have also shown an absolute risk reduction of 15% for a second emergency visit, which equivalates to a number needed to treat of roughly 7. So what corticosteroids should you give? Classically, prednisone has been used here, but recent evidence would suggest that dexamethasone can be a good alternative. In 2014, Keeney and al. published a meta-analysis of dexamethasone used for asthma exacerbations. Their findings were that dex was just as good as prednisone, and furthermore, only a single dose was comparable to a five-day course of prednisone. Now, this isn't Journal Club, so we won't dive deep into some of the limitations of this study, but there is mounting evidence now that a single dose of DEX is probably just as good as a five-day course of prednisone. This option is also interesting since the IV formulation of DEX can be used PO. So with the same IV drug formulation, you could potentially give it PO to treat an asthma exacerbation, but also IM or IV in the case of altitude-related pathology. Talk about having multiple uses for the same drug. One last thing to touch on here is the use of inhaled corticosteroids. Usually, we don't think of this a lot in the emergency department as they have a limited role in treating the acute symptoms right in front of you, but are more important for day-to-day disease control. That being said though, in 2012, Edmonds and al. published a paper looking at inhaled steroids use from the emergency department. They showed that including the use of inhaled steroids to the treatment prevented some patients from being admitted to the hospital. Now, it is hard to translate a reduced hospitalization risk into benefits expected in the wilderness setting. Understanding this, I think there is a role for someone with an asthma exacerbation in the wilderness setting to also be treated with inhaled corticosteroids to reduce their chances of their exacerbation worsening and needing a higher level of care. Say, for instance, you're not planning on immediate evacuation. Now, I do not carry inhaled corticosteroids in my medical kit, but If you're going on a trip with someone who is asthmatic, I would highly recommend that they have that puffer with them, as they should, because this is the med that controls their disease anyways. Number six, epinephrine. Okay, so you've identified your patient is having a severe asthma exacerbation. One, maybe two courses of inhaled subutamol have been given, as well as your oral steroids, but it's just not cutting it. The situation is no bueno. In some sick patients, inhaled beta-agonist drugs won't get the job done to open up those lower airways. Epinephrine here will act as a similar mechanism of action, also being a beta-agonist drug. Therefore, in severe cases where the patient may not be moving enough air for the inhaled drug to help out, consider using epinephrine. What dose should you use? 
Well, for adults, if you have an EpiPen, you don't have much of a choice, do you? Your dose is going to be 0.3 milligrams. If you have vials of Epi, though, you should give 0.5 milligrams IM, intramuscular. In an article published way back in 1980 titled The Optimal Dosing of Epi in Acute Asthma Exacerbations, the authors showed that a 0.5 milligram dose was superior to 0.3 milligram dose in that more bronchodilation was achieved in peak flow measures. Now, if you recall our recent Journal Club podcast, I will be the first to criticize and point out that this is not a patient-oriented outcome. But in the absence of any other better evidence to guide us, I think that giving a 0.5 dose is reasonable with these study results. As we have also previously discussed on episode 3 on anaphylaxis, the route of administration should be intramuscular and in the thigh rather than the deltoid, as this will give a faster and higher peak concentration in the serum. Okay, let's put this all together. So, you are in the backcountry enjoying the outdoors check you come across someone in severe respiratory distress due to asthma not good but you know what to do after a concise assessment your working diagnosis is an acute asthma exacerbation induced by exercise you have the patient rest sitting up in the position in which he is most comfortable to breathe the patient has his rescue inhaler of salbutamol on him you rapidly MacGyver a McChamber with a plastic water bottle and administer eight puffs to the patient. He's not looking much better after the treatment, but better nonetheless since you've got him sitting and resting. After a second dose of salbutamol, no change in his state. Because of the severity of his symptoms, you decide to move on to epinephrine. Luckily, you carry your EpiPen with you in your medical kit, and after explaining the plan to your patient, which he agrees with, you administer 0.3 milligrams of IM epinephrine in the thigh. Now lucky you, you also carry your dose of dexamethasone in your kit, and now that the patient is looking a little bit better and thinks he can tolerate the dose orally, you also decide to administer it. Because of the severity of the patient's symptoms though, you rightfully identify that he needs to receive ongoing treatment in the hospital setting. Knowing that exercise induced his asthma attack, you want to keep him resting and not exert him to evacuate. Lucky for you, you aren't too far from the trailhead. Cell phone's still picking up, so you make a call to the local emergency services who arrange for a patrol team to get to you and assist with the evacuation to the EMS services who will be waiting at the trailhead. But just as you think you've got things under control, your patient starts shivering. He is getting more confused. No, just kidding. No hypothermia today, folks. But anyways, you would know how to deal with it, right? So that's it for today on the Wild EM Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Until next time, remember to keep your crampons in the ice. Yeah.